class, so children, make your way to the back if you could. I always enjoy the, uh, the Bosworth family as they sing together. Tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. I'd love to get my family to do that, but I gave up. There's no way that's going to ever happen. So, My hat's off to Violet, though. Violet Moody. How she got those kids to project like that, I can hardly imagine. When I was those kids' age, I was the biggest dud that ever that was ever on this earth. I mean, they couldn't get me to do nothing. And I didn't want to do nothing. The most dreadful season of the year was Christmas. You gotta remember that in my little church, there was probably a little handful of children. You know, maybe there was twelve at the very, very most. So you were stuck with this Christmas program and doing uh, numerous parts of which you cared very little for. So my hat's off to Violet Moody for getting them to do that for sure. We are in chapter 23 of the book of Acts, 23, as we follow along in the path of this extraordinary man named Paul the Apostle. And he is extraordinary. There is no doubt about that. In fact, it's more comfortable for us to deify Paul. And the reason why it's more comfortable is because we look at his life, we see it unfolding from his conversion on, and we say, my, I sure have fallen tremendously short of that. So we like to somewhat put him up on some sort of a pedestal, some sort of a level that, that, that well, that's not for us, that's for the Apostle Paul. Nothing could be further from the truth. The same spirit that engaged into the life of Paul, that empowered the life of Paul, is the same spirit that empowers us. And so to somehow throw him up on some sort of a level of which uh, we ourselves are never responsible to attain to is really not the right way of looking at it either. It was a special ministry that he had. There's no question about that. You're to go to the Gentiles. He did a wonderful job there. Even amidst the sorrows, even amidst the, the, the tribulation that he faced, there were always those there that were saved. And then he went to Jerusalem. Well, he was heartily received by the elders and, and, and those of the disciples that were there in Jerusalem. They welcomed him with open arms and, and, and maybe the very first thing that he did by, uh, by taking that vow and, and putting himself into the temple for a certain amount of days, was that misguided? I don't know. But certainly, humanly speaking, we don't see even the kind of successes that we saw up in Asia, down here in Jerusalem. In fact, the nation of Israel seemed to become more and more hardened in their hearts against the gospel. He was there a day and a half, a day and a half, and he three riots broke out. Three riots. That's like a break. That's a that's that's breaking all records for Paul. Well, there was a riot or two here and there, but three in a day and a half. My goodness. He is an extraordinary man. 
He is powerful in his ministry. But he was human. Just like you. And just like me. And we're going to see that today. I believe that will be pointed out in our passage today. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, we do give you thanks for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was human too. But at the same time, he was God. He that thought it not robbery to be equal with God made himself. No one else could do that for him. No one else could subject him to such humility. He made himself of no reputation. Our Father, we thank you that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And now, Father, we pray that what is said is said by the power of the Holy Spirit, not of I, but the Holy Spirit that dwells in me. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's turn then to chapter number 23. It's a very small outline. It would be 1 through 10, Paul's discouragement. Verse 11, God's intervention. And verse 12 through 35 would be Paul's departure from Jerusalem. So let's begin to read in verse number 1 of chapter 23. In the book of Acts, then Paul looked earnestly at the consul, said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God strike you, you whitewash wall, for you sit in judgment. You sit and judge me according to the law. And do you command, uh, commanding to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I do not know, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducee and the other part was Pharisee, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, no angels, no spirit. But the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander feared that Paul might be pulled in pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, and to take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. I'm going to stop my reading there. 
because there's so much to cover in that first portion. We'll try to get to the last portion, but uh, we'll see how far we can get uh, today. One riot was in verse 22, uh, 28, excuse me, of chapter 22. And then we had the second riot in, in chapter 22. And it says in verse number 18, And they saw him saying to, to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. And that was his testimony as far as his conversion is concerned. And then he said that uh, in, in verse 22, and they listened to him until this word, until what word? When he said that he was assigned to the Gentiles. Well, that was enough. They'd heard enough. And it says, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. They kicked him out of the the uh, the tabernacle. Now they're going to kick him off the earth completely. Then as they cried out and they tore their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. We know what happened next. They probably tied his hands and his feet to a pole. And they begin this process that was absolutely illegal for a Roman citizen to be ever put under. There was no allegation against Paul at this time. Much less had they not found any guilt. They didn't even know what the charge was. And they laid Paul out and, and they were going to scourge him. Examination by scourging, perfectly legal for someone who was not a Roman citizen, but not legal for a Roman citizen. And Paul did what he had done in the past. But strangely enough, in chapter 16, when he was in Philippi, he did not do. And that was to pull out his Roman citizenship card. He could have done that in Philippi. Why didn't he do it? He allowed himself to be beaten with rods. Not a, not a very pleasant experience at all. And then he was cast off into prison. And you remember what happened there. The keeper of that jail said, what must I do to be saved? Well, that might be the reason why Paul, Paul allowed it to go on. Somehow the Spirit of God had directed him to take that beating. I'll tell you what, if they were going to beat me, I would have screamed, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman, I'm a Roman. Hey. Every time I would have screamed that, but not that time. But he does this time. He says, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? A Roman citizen? Said Claudius, Lysias, a Roman citizen. Are you a Roman citizen? And Claudius uh, comes along with this big story of how he paid this tremendous sum of money to become a Roman citizen. And Paul says, I was freeborn a Roman citizen. Oh, okay, this changes everything. Because now Claudius Lysias is guilty of beating a Roman citizen that has not even had a charge laid against him. 
The charge for that is his own life. And so now he goes into this protection mode. Isn't it amazing that the, 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 the nation of Israel, the, the, the people of God, so to speak, they're the ones that gave all the trouble to Paul. It was the Roman government that rescued him. They do it again here. Verse 30 of that same chapter, 22, sets up 23, and it says the next day, because he wanted to know from the, for certain why he was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. It was kind of a, a hurried consul. It, it, they, they got this thing together very swiftly and, and it probably wasn't in the, in the judgment hall. It became a judgment hall, but it probably wasn't even there. And, and so they got them all together and they, with the idea that Claudius Lysias wanted to know what was going on here. What's the beef against this guy? They, he was under the impression he must have been uh, part of that Egyptian squad that came in and, and, and were going to kill uh, parts of the nation of Israel. Completely wrong in his thoughts. But he had no idea what the charges were against this man, Paul. And so Paul begins to speak. Then Paul looked earnestly at the consul. And I'm sure that what he had intended was, was a... a a passioned plead for this nation of which he so desperately loved. He loved Israel. It, it was like a it was like a, a father who is a, a great evangelist and, and, and many, many are saved and, and there are people saved here and there are people saved there, all over saved, and his own family is going to hell. That's the way it was for Paul. He had no family, not physical. But that's the way he viewed the nation of Israel. He loved them. Absolutely would have given his soul for them, according to Romans chapter 9. So he begins this passion plea. He was going to lay it out. They've got to understand. They, they've got to understand. They, they see the word of God. They see the word of God laid out. They've got to understand that this Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Christ. The risen Christ. He fills the bill. They'll see it. They'll understand. Did they? No. They didn't. Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. I couldn't say that. I don't know about you. Maybe there are some here that could, but I couldn't say that. But he honestly could say that. Well, wait a second, Paul. Ho, ho. Let's, let's rewind a little bit here. You killed Men and ladies and left children infants. You did that without violating your conscience before a holy God? That's exactly right. He felt he was doing God's will. Never violating 
his conscience even before he was saved. And then after he was saved, he was gun-ho for the gospel. They call him a zealot. He was a zealot. I, I, I think that my father used to use this term, and I, I know it's not in the books of parenting. But he used to call me at times, now don't do this, you're a no-count. I thought it was some sort of a term or something. I had no idea what he was talking about. Does your life count for something? Does it count for something? He was a zealot. He was a zealot in chapter 7 of Acts. He was gun-ho zealous to get rid of these people that called themselves the way. They took the name of their, their leader, Christ, Christians. Get rid of them. He was zealous about that. He had a completely good conscience before God Almighty in that he felt God Almighty was telling him to do that. He was zealous about something. Folks, you know, we can be zealous for a lot of things. And, and I see people that, that, that have misguided priorities. They're, they're zealous for all kinds of crazy, wild things. And then I see these other people that they sit around on the couch and and they've got the remote because they're too lazy to change the stations anymore. And they've got their remote, you know, and, and all they do is sit there and they watch. <laughs> Zealous for nothing. Counting for nothing. No direction. No purpose. No real meaning in life. Nothing. Just sit there. At least be zealous for something that is not worth being zealous for, but be zealous. Some direction in life. Some purpose in life. Paul was a zealot. Everything that he put his mind to, he went into it 150%. Let me tell you, I, I wouldn't call myself a zealot that way. No way. No way. Once in a while I can call up on the couch, you know, and just kind of... Exist. Barely. Hmm. He was a zealot. He said, I have a clear conscience before God. I have a clear conscience up to this day. Now, he made some mistakes here. We're going to find that out. But conscience became a very, very big subject with the Apostle Paul. In fact, 25 times after this, he mentions the word conscience. We can have a seared conscience. Now, he's talking about the unbeliever in that particular portion. He's talking about the unbeliever. Their, their conscience can become completely seared to the point where they, they're doing things that are absolutely against their conscience, but they've done them time and time and over and over and over again to the point where there's no conscience about it anymore. It's a, it's a seared conscience. It's like taking a torch, you know, and just keep heating an area up until it completely hardens over. That's the idea. A completely seared conscience. He talks about a weak conscience. 
Individuals who, who might not understand all that there is in the scriptures. And, and the, the example is given in 1 Corinthians where there were individuals who went and got meat out of uh, 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 butcher shops that, that were actually used as idol worship. So they would sacrifice these animals to idols. And then what do you do after that? You just, well, I can't, I can't eat it. Can't just throw it in the corner and let it die? No. They would open butcher shops and they'd sell the meat. Now, you know, you, you, you understand the whole of the scriptures, you understand the layout of the scriptures, and you have no problem with that. And so you go to the meat shop and you get the meat and you eat the meat and you don't think of the of it. Others might see you go into that meat shop and say, huh, can you believe what Mr. Rent was doing? You know where I saw him. And Paul said, you don't just come along and, and turn to that person and say, well, you're just not far as long as I am yet. I've got it all figured out, and apparently you do not. No, you respect their conscience. You go to Publix, get your meat. They don't offer to idols there, so you, you whatever. You don't do things in order to, uh, to, to deal uh, with a person with a weak conscience. He talks about a conscience without offense. The conscience is important. One preacher said it this way, though. And we've got to be careful with conscience because conscience is a terrible guide. But a good goad. A terrible guide. But a good goad. In other words, it has the ability to, to poke us in the side with a sharp stick once in a while and say, ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, I need to stay away from that. Not a good thing. A good goad, but a terrible guide. Why, why is it a terrible guide? Because we can get we can get uh, uh, caught up in all kinds of, uh, of 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 causes these days, and 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 we can be driven by our conscience, and, and yet that cause has no stamp of eternity on it. It is absolutely worthless, and we can be zealot. A zealot for that cause. I mean, I'm going after it. Conscience is a terrible guide. But a good goad. A conscience must be linked to knowledge. 1 Corinthians 8, 7, 7 tells us that. That we, we've got to link it with knowledge. Where do we get this knowledge? Where do we get this understanding? Well, we've got to be guided by the Word of God. That's what we've got to be guided by. And what happens when we allow conscience to be guided by the Word of God is conscience then come alongside of the Holy Spirit. It works with the Holy Spirit. It can be a very positive source of influence in our lives. It is a very positive source of influence in our lives. In fact, we're born with a conscience. Everyone is born with a conscience. Now, we can, we can put that conscience off, deny that conscience. We feed it with all kinds of things which causes it to be a misguided conscience. It's going off in the wrong directions, but we all have a conscience. But when that conscience becomes affiliated, working alongside of the Holy Spirit, it can be a great help to all of us. Let me give you a portion on that. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. It is that chapter where Paul is 
is confessing his love for the nation of Israel. Romans chapter 9 and verse 1. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. So, see, the conscience, although other people's conscience, when they put them as, you know the old saying, let your conscience be the guide. That's from the pit of hell. That's as naturalistic as ever could be. Don't let your conscience be the guide. But the conscience can be, if it's guided by the Holy Spirit, be a very useful tool in keeping us on track. And Romans chapter 9 verse 1 gives us indication of that. Ann and I said, you guys, close by, punch him in the mouth. Now, there's two different descriptions on that. One description is that somebody got a club and bashed him in the face. Now, would that feel good? Mm. Mm-mm. That ain't going to bring out the best in you. I'll guarantee you that. This was Paul's reaction Paul said to him, God strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? This is what the Word of God says. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. Now, I want to show you something here. When it comes to our natural selves, our, our beings, and we're in a situation like Paul was in, we can't even imagine that. I don't know if anybody here can, can say that recently they've been struck right across the mouth with a club or the fist. They don't know which one. Either one does not feel good. Um, you, you, you're, you're in traffic and you're driving along and all of a sudden this guy just cuts you off, man. And, 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 and you, well, it says that the flesh lusteth against the spirit. You see, we don't, when we're cut off in traffic, we don't say, oh, I pray for that person. He may be one going to hell. And you go and do sort of prayer reasoning. And then later on, you say, where did he get his license? He's an idiot. No, you see, it says, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. The first thing that comes out, and it just like falls out all over the ground like like nastiness. It's called the flesh. Now, I know that we have this tendency to want to deify Paul. And we want to elevate him up. And somehow, even people will come across, you, they, 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 you listen to it, and they'll somehow justify this. There's no justification for this. I think he was in the flesh. God strike you, you whitewashed wall. See, Paul's whole personality was not that of a milk toast. He wasn't... You study Paul, and I'll guarantee you, you're not going to come up with that. A zealot is not normally a milk toast. And he reacted very quickly, and he reacted out of the flesh, 
without one doubt. This was the flesh reacting first in this particular case. First Peter 2 and verse 23 says this, Who when he was reviled did not revile in return. So the Lord Jesus Christ, when he was reviled, kept silent. There was Paul's example. Remember what Paul said? He said, you follow me as I follow Christ. Was he following Christ here? No. No, I'm, I, I, I'm not making an excuse for that. He just wasn't. Would I have? No. Not even close. I'd probably have done the same thing he did. It's our human reaction to react to something like that the way that Paul did. And then let's go down um, to verse number four. And it says, And those who stood by him said, Do you revile God's high priest? Now, we don't know why Paul didn't recognize Ananias as the high priest. He did apparently have enough information about him to know that Ananias was an absolute scoundrel. Ananias was a Sadducee. Now, just just to understand a little bit about this Sadducee-Pharisee relationship within the Sanhedrin, at this particular time, the Sadducees controlled the Sanhedrin. They also controlled the temple. That would have been Solomon's temple, am I not? So it would have been Solomon's temple. They also controlled the priesthood. And Ananias was a Sadducee. I'll have to say this because it, it's from my old, my old Sunday school teacher, John Hammond, who used to always say, they're, they're Sadducee because they're sad, you, you see. And, and it's true. They are sad. They're a sad lot of people. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in anything supernatural. You say, well, wait a second. Hold it. What are they doing as the supposed spiritual guides then? He's the priest. He's a Sadducee. Well, they did believe in God. This was their theology. Let me try and give you a little insight on this. God created all things. Well, at least they weren't foolish enough to believe that it all just happened by some process we call evolution. I mean, that's really stupid. They did, as they looked around and they they realized the dynamics of earth, that there had to be a God for sure, but that after God created all things, he gave them a, a, a owner's manual. He, he said, here, your owner's manual, now you're on your own. That's the, the, that's the plight of a Sadducee. There's no influence of God in their lives. They make their own decisions. They cut their own course. They're their own guides, you see. That was a Sadducee. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, they did believe in the supernatural. They, 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 they believed in resurrection and these things. But I, wanna, I want you to re- remember something. When it came to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was here on this earth, who did he have the biggest beef with, the Sadducees or the Pharisees? Ah, odd, isn't it? You say, well, the Pharisees, I mean, that, well, Paul was a Pharisee. 
He had a father who was a Pharisee. He was, he was born into that Pharisaical order. So, so they're the good guys, right? Who did the Lord Jesus Christ have the beef with? The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Exactly. He called them whitewashed tombs. He called them hypocrites. You hypocrites. I don't believe Eric said about it. The Sadducees. Oh, you see, the Sadducees weren't really bothered by the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in life after death. You just died like a dog. God gave you this guidebook. And, and, and by the way, as far as their view of the Torah, the Old Testament, the Word of God, they followed it verbatim a lot closer than the Pharisees. Never added to it nor took away from it. They're very careful about that. The Pharisees, on the other hand, whenever they, in convenient order, whenever it was convenient for them, they just added to the Scriptures, you see. And that's what caught the attention of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember when the Pharisees uh, got to the point where their parents were getting really, really old? And, and of course, the law says you to take care of your parents. So they said, well, we'll have to trump that law. And so what they did is they said, we have another law. That if we took our money and give it to the Lord and are completely given over to the Lord, well, then we don't have to take care of our parents. You see the hypocrisy in the whole thing? You see why it, it just irked the Lord Jesus Christ? It absolutely did. Here was Paul, and I must, I must, I must move really, really fast here. Here was Paul. He was thrown. Uh, uh, in front of the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, let's read from verse 6. It says, But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducee and the other part Pharisee, he quite cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee. So he sided with the Pharisees. Was that right or wrong? I don't know. I hope you know. Maybe you're smarter than me. Come to me afterward and tell me. I have no idea. He pitted one against the other. Was there hypocrisy in that body called the Sanhedrin who was made up of Pharisee and Sadducee? Absolute hypocrisy. Listen, one preacher put it this way. They didn't get along or agree on anything except the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and their hatred for Paul. That's all they agreed on. It was an absolutely hypocritical body that supposedly ruled Israel. Of course, they had the, the military strength of the, uh, and the actual rule was Rome at the time. But they're the ones who made the decisions. So what Paul did is he said, wait a second, the hypocrisy has gone on enough. Maybe there was uh, justification in what he did. But he said, hey, I'm a Pharisee. My father was a Pharisee. I believe in resurrection. And that is exactly why you have me here on the basis of the concept of resurrection. Then arose a loud outcry, and the scribes and the Pharisees partly arose and protested, saying, well, the Pharisees said, we find no guilt in him. Well, he's following along with our, our path. We find no evil in this man, but if his spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. That, that was sort of Gamaliel's approach, was it not? Gamaliel kind of used that same approach. Listen, if it's of God, then what are we to bucket? We, we can't go against this. If it's not of God, then let God handle it. A good approach. 
Very, very wise indeed. So that's what they did. All except, what was the response? It says, uh, the commander feared lest Paul be pulled apart in pieces. Now, the reason why is because the majority of the people in that council, in that Sanhedrin, were Sadducees. The biggest, most powerful body was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were aristocrats. They were very, very wealthy. Tremendously. They should be wealthy. Because, listen, if your, if your plight in life is to simply get onto this earth and get all that you can and then die like a dog, hey, it makes sense that they were wealthy. Absolutely follows right down. So there were more Sadducees than there were Pharisees in that body. So the commander commands him to be taken away to the barracks again. Romans to the rescue. Romans to the rescue. Then we have verse 11, and we're going to end here. And I knew I wasn't going to get too much further than this. And we can cover the rest in our get-together tomorrow night. But it says this, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. Now, I want you to notice the words of the Lord here. This is just mind-boggling. So many people have sat around contemplating over and over again, should he have gone to Rome? Should Paul have gone to Rome? Should Paul have gone to Rome? Should Paul have gone to Rome? I can't say for definite sure, but you notice what the Lord does? Does he go to Paul and say, Paul, come on, you blew it. Look, riot number one, riot number two. Look, Paul, listen, you're breaking all records here. In a day and a half and you got three riots done. You blew it. What an awful testimony. Listen, whatever you did there, please don't do it in Rome. Oh, no, what he says, interestingly enough, is whatever you did there in Jerusalem, you do the exact same thing in Rome. Paul was probably at the lowest point of his existence. There is no lower point than you could be. Three riots in a day and a half. This guy was depressed. And now he had, he had completely botched up this supposed testimony that was only one verse, by the way. He completely botched it up. And then, and then he just flew off the handle, completely lost it. You whitewashed wall. God, oh, by the way, six years later, Ananias was dead. You say, well, how did he die? Well, there was a revolt in Jerusalem. The Jews revolted against the Roman army. And it was short-lived. Huh, don't think it got too far, but they did for a time. You know what the first thing they did? They hunted down Ananias because they hated him so bad. Self-seeking individual. They hated him so bad. You know where they found him? They found him in the aqueduct or the sewer. They found him in the sewer, and they dug him out of the sewer like a rat. And they executed him. Six years later, Paul's words came true. Does that exonerate? Does that justify Paul's words? No, doesn't at all. I think he acted in the flesh. But here the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, cheer up, Paul. Listen, listen, there are going to be 40 men. They're going to, they're going to, they're, they're going to bind themselves together in an oath that they'll not eat nor drink. 
They'll not eat nor drink until Paul is dead. Now, if that would have happened without verse 11, let's scratch out verse 11, let's take it out of there, and then that would have happened. Listen, you can only take so much as a human being. There is nobody above depression. If you take out verse 11 and then you have 40 men that have bound themselves in an oath that they would not eat or drink until they kill the Apostle Paul, you would, Paul would just say, I, 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 let me die. I think his, his uh, attempt to pit the Sadducees against the Pharisees was somewhat of uh, self-preservation. Could be. He may have recognized that I'm getting nowhere with these people. It's only getting worse. I want you to notice something. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. And I think this is the lesson right here. God's analysis of Paul's ministry was all encouragement. If we looked at his ministry in Jerusalem, we'd say, failure. Not God. Oh, you see, what he had intended in Jerusalem is exactly what happened in Jerusalem. Though there were different things that had happened along the way that you could say maybe weren't God's will, but but he said, you do the same thing over in Rome, Paul. I want you to do the same thing. Paul must have thought, that's the last thing in the world I want. This has been a disaster. He was probably at the lowest point of his life experience as a preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was on the floor. He was at the lowest absolute point. And God says, no, no, Paul, Paul, you get it all wrong. You did exactly what I wanted. Do the same thing in Rome. The disciples gathered around that cross. They looked up at the Lord Jesus Christ. His hands pinned to the wood. His feet pinned to the wood. And they just shook their heads. You see, this wasn't the way it was supposed to end. This wasn't the way it was supposed to end. This man should have risen and moved in as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He was to take over and crush the Roman tyranny that is against us. That's the way it was supposed to end. And there they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And old Peter, he grabs up his sword, you know, and he, he whacks off Malchus's ear. You say, wow. Well, Peter was no small man, but he's a nut, man. He's going to get killed. Here was a whole Roman cohort. Here was all these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees who absolutely hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's whacking off a guy's ear. If it weren't for the intervention of the Lord saying, who do you want here? You want me? You got me. Leave them alone. And I always see that scene. The Bible says they bound him. And Peter's spirit must have collapsed right there. Nothing bound that man before. His miracles were unquestioned. 
When there was a dead, he raised them to the, from the life. His power, his influence, his words. He was the right man to crush Rome. Well, friends, you see, that would have been a step down. Instead, he crushed our sin. Your sins and mine. That would have been a terrible step down. To simply crush a a nation, they come, they go. He crushed your sins. And he crushed mine. And as they were there in that upper room, and they were all gathered together there, and I don't think there was a word even said. They must have just been looking at each other. What on earth happened? What does the Bible say? He appeared in their midst. Peace be unto you. Oh, you see, that whole scene of the cross, they looked at it and said, Oh, this is an awful deviation from the will of God. This is an awful deviation from what what He wanted. We know it's a deviation. And God was saying, Just wait. Just wait. Just be patient. Wait. And that one hanging on the cross would become the redeemer of the whole world. Oh, you see, our perception of things, the way we see them, oh, don't don't be locked into that. Oh, this is the way it is. is, It's got to be, it's got to be, it's got to be. Oh, does it got to be? God's perception might be altogether different. He said, you did exactly what I wanted done in in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. I want you to do the same thing in Rome. God doesn't look solely at response like we do. We call it a failure because everywhere he went, there was a response of negativeness. They wanted to kill him over it. Well, then that's a failure. It's not what God said. His perception of things oftentimes is way, way different than our perception of things. And so he says to Paul, be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. And I think Paul welled up in his own heart and realized that that though I, at, at times, I said, God, where are you? Where are you in all this? These men are going to gonna pull me into pieces. Where are you? And God said, I've been there all along. I was right next to you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Holy Spirit in us the person of Christ in us. What a comfort. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. He loves you. Look at life through his eyes. Look at life through his eyes. It, it, it might take you different places than you would naturally go. And to God be the glory. Great things. He hath done. Our Father, we do give you thanks. We thank you for the Word of God, for its living and active. Father, we thank you for the comfort that you gave to Paul, the same comfort you give to us. 
when we feel as low as low could ever bring us, you remind us, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Oh, Father, help us to go out in that power. In the power and influence of a life on this earth that is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Son of God, and growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is in his name we do pray. Amen.